0: Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura.
1: Welcome to Sidebar. Discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Law Deans Jackie Gardena, and Mitch Winnick.
2: It's a story about resources and it's a story about
1: experience. That's one of our guests on Sidebar today, Professor Rachel
3: Hinkle. Today we're going to peel back what is considered one of the more mysterious, little-known, and largely overlooked methods that are used to influence the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. Jackie, We've previously discussed the influence that religious ideology may be having on the Supreme Court decisions. But today's topic goes much deeper into the information from outside sources, including special interest groups, lobbyists, trade groups, nonprofit policy organizations, and other nonparties to a case. These groups file what are known as amicus curiae briefs which is Latin for friends of the court.
4: Yeah, Mitch, I'm really excited about this topic. Throughout my career, I've signed on to amicus briefs before the court, but I didn't know whether or not they'd be read or if they'd have any effect. And it may surprise people that an estimated 25 to $50 million a year is invested in briefs to the Supreme Court with the hope of influencing the court's decisions on specific cases. The question that our guests, Professors Morgan Hazelton and Professor Rachel Hinkle, are going to shed light on today is whether these investments appear to be effective.
3: Professors Hazelton and Hinkle are co-authors of the recent book Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significance of Briefs in Judicial Decision Making. The book provides some of the results of their just simply amazing research that reviewed more than 25,000 briefs filed with the Supreme Court between 1984 and 2015, also the text of related court opinions, and interviews with former Supreme Court clerks and attorneys. Professor Hazelton holds B.A., M.A., Ph.D. and J.D. degrees and teaches civil rights, constitutional law, and judicial politics, among other topics, at St. Louis University. Professor Hinkle also holds B.A., M.A., Ph.D., and J.D. degrees, and teaches government and politics, civil rights, and constitutional law, among other topics, at the University of Buffalo.
4: How they could have possibly conducted such exhaustive research, they're going to tell us. What did their research and analysis discover, they're going to tell us. We now want to welcome Morgan and Rachel to
2: Sidebar. Thank you. Morgan and I are really happy to be here today. In a minute, I'd like to talk about
3: how the two of you came to research and write on such a challenging topic. But first, I'd like to set the stage by asking you to briefly explain what are amicus briefs and why are they important for understanding the decision-making process of the U.S. Supreme Court?
0: In audience, these amicus curiae briefs are friend of the court briefs where we have Parties that are interested in the outcome of these major Supreme Court cases who are not immediately part of the briefs. And the Supreme Court famously really encourages and allows this type of behavior in a way that we don't see in other courts in the United States. And we see it's really robust participation from interest groups, law professors, nonprofit organization, trade groups, and state and local governments that want to provide information in the form of arguments, facts, statistics, what have you, to the court in the hope of influencing these outcomes.
3: And Rachel, it seems to me that for those who are lawyers listening, we are so used to the idea that the only thing that's going to be considered in a decision, are within the strict framework of the case. If it didn't get in in evidence, it's not to be considered, whether it's a jury or a judge. Now we're learning, or at least relearning, that all of these outside interest groups are invited in at the last minute at the Supreme Court. They get to file all these opinions, may or may not be fact-based related to the issues of the case, and the court considers those. Is that correct?
2: they read them as a different issue although our research shows they have an impact and they can't have an impact unless they're being read so so absolutely and it is it is unusual even that the Supreme Court allows such a widespread submission of these briefs as Morgan mentioned and I do have to say I know we're going to talk about data collection but I want to put a little plug in here we have thousands and thousands of amicus briefs However, the parties to the litigation, the folks who've been in it since the beginning, they also get to submit their own written arguments as well. A lot of research on amicus briefs looks beyond the parties and focuses on the amicus, and we look at both, which gives us a, a kind of richness uh, to our analysis. We can compare, we can contrast, because all of these briefs are ultimately providing that information to the court that, as you mentioned, Mitch, is outside of what we might necessarily think, strictly speaking, goes to a judge determining a case.
4: I just want to back up for a minute and do a wide lens because I think you say something very important in the introduction to your book is that we need to recognize that the Supreme Court is a policy-making body, an unelected policy-making body, which is important to remind people. We have marriage equality in the United States because the Supreme Court ordained it people have access to the Affordable Care Act and health care in the United States because the Supreme Court ultimately didn't declare it unconstitutional. And both of those are policy decisions. So influencing the Supreme Court through the original briefs that the litigants might put in, as well as the amicus, is shaping policy for the entire country in ways that is, I think, more invisible for people than perhaps what we see in congressional legislative lawmaking or in the states as well. So I just want to make sure that we highlight that what these amicus briefs are doing is really influencing policy that will affect all of us.
0: Absolutely. And we borrow from Lee Epstein and other scholars who think about amicus briefs in terms of informational lobbying, right? That we tend to not think of lobbying happening at the Supreme Court, but this looks a lot like lobbying Because in the congressional legislative setting, of course, we have groups saying, here's information about the impact that will happen to this industry. Here is how your constituents, who I represent, uh, based on shared interests, think about this issue. And we see that happening in briefs quite a bit, amicus briefs.
2: You mentioned the invisibility aspect, and there's an aspect of which our research taps into a visibility that doesn't exist if you look at how professionals in particular lobby Congress. So when professional lobbyists go to legislators, state or federal, there's no record of that. Researchers like us can't get a document of everything that was said. So Supreme Court policymaking is an area where it's unethical to have a conversation with the justices outside of these written documents that are part of the public record. There's a tremendous amount of them, which creates an invisibility if you don't have someone to kind of get in there for you and tell you what's going on. But in a way, our book can inform anybody, any member of the public, about how policy is being made. This is policy that, like you mentioned, affects everybody's life, and we can really dig into how that is happening and perhaps expand our understanding of what might also be happening in other areas where policies are being made that affect people's everyday lives.
4: I just want to point out that I thought of it as invisible because of the volume of information available, but your book does exactly what you'd hoped, which is makes it visible and provides at least some context for people to understand how Supreme Court decision-making is influenced.
3: We are talking with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hinkle about the comprehensive research they have conducted on the effect that Supreme Court Friend of the Court briefs have on the ultimate decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court. When we come back, we will learn more about their amazing journey through 26,000 Supreme Court
5: briefs. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law school prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm, while practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. Procertus is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.prosertus.com.
4: Welcome back. Mitch and I are talking with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hinkle, authors of the book, Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significant of Briefs in Judicial Decision Making.
5: Well, let's talk a little
3: about the research behind the book let's lay the groundwork. What did it take to do this research? And I'm almost afraid to ask, how many years did it take to do this?
2: I think it took at least a decade.
3: Okay, so that's impressive, to say the least. Should you start with what made you come up with this crazy idea to spend the next 10 years of your life researching this area?
2: Uh, We did a couple of other things in that 10 years too, but... (laughs) But yes, I I think the idea that the information existed, right, it's just so intriguing that it's out there and a lot of it was available in electronic format, which while it's tremendously difficult, the electronic format makes things a lot easier. We didn't have to actually read 26,000 briefs. We had to collect 26,000 files, which, you know, is, is challenging enough.
0: And I would also say both Rachel and I come to political science and social science Having gone to law school, I practiced. I was writing and consuming briefs and watching that happen. Rachel worked at both the district and court of appeals level. And so we were keenly aware that main vehicle for information is briefs. And yet, on the social science side, because of the difficulty of getting at that information and understanding that information, it wasn't we thought properly being considered and
3: it wasn't all the digital files was it after you started collecting them there were a few gaps and then what did you do
2: the very good folks at the cornell law library were were very helpful to us that we went into the archives at literally like the third sub-basement or the second sub-basement where all the briefs are filed And there's seven copies of some briefs and zero copies of others. And even though it's largely what it's supposed to be, we did a lot of digging through those files and a lot of scanning PDFs. And then just, of course, translating that image into text is another challenge along the way that we faced. But it was certainly worth it. The time we spent in the archives, we got another significant chunk of briefs.
4: We're going to take another brief break, and when we come back, Mitch and I will continue our conversation with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hinkle, authors of the book Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significance of Briefs in Judicial Decision-Making. We're going to learn what the research indicated were effective elements of brief writing.
1: Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at or
3: visit our website, trellis.com. Welcome back. Jackie, between the two of us, you are the one who has had actual experience in the use of Supreme Court briefs. Were you surprised by Morgan and Rachel's research?
4: Having been someone who was involved in coordinating amicus briefs for a Supreme Court decision, it didn't come as a surprise to me. But you were identifying, in some ways, similarity of language or messaging that identified coordination, as well
0: as your interviews with people that highlighted coordination? Absolutely. We believe that we're seeing patterns, and sometimes in ways that are surprising. Former Supreme Court clerks will tell you, just as the Supreme Court would through its formal rules, we don't want to see repetitive amicus briefs. They understand the importance of coordinating on the theme, having policy coalescence, right? And having a consistent message, I believe. And that's something I think is invisible to the public that there is this coordination among briefers and that you don't want a rogue amicus brief coming in and just speaking off topic or a strange argument, right? In some ways the rules seem to encourage this unique information, but in reality, It's really where you see that policy coalescence and a consistency of message that really seems to matter at the Supreme Court, at least in the actual language of the opinion.
3: You've collected these 25,000 plus briefs. You've probably collected 100,000 contacts of the lawyers, interested parties that were involved in all of these briefs. You started analyzing it using these tools. And so what were some of the key findings?
2: One of the biggest things you might care about in a court case is who won, right? Who affects who wins. Now, that's just it's just the tip of the iceberg and I think Morgan's going to talk in a minute about really affecting the language of the Supreme Court opinion because that's that policy-making document that gives us this rich and nuanced policy.
4: Let's take a brief break, and when we come back, we will dig further into what Rachel and Morgan discovered about what really affects who wins and loses when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Empire College of Law.
0: I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede.
4: To learn more or apply, visit empirecollegeoflaw.org.
3: Welcome back to our conversation with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hinkle, authors of the book persuading the Supreme Court the significance of briefs in judicial decision-making. Morgan and Rachel, at the end of the day, how are you defining success?
2: We also want to know who wins. One of the most robust findings we have is the experience of the folks involved really impacts who wins, and this is in a relative sense. So if we're thinking who wins and who loses, you have to compare the, the two sides of the case. Uh, So we find that the sides with more experienced attorneys, attorneys who have filed more briefs in the past, the more briefs you file, the better you get at it, the more the justices are used to seeing your name, that side is more likely to win. So that experience of the attorneys is more likely to to win the case. So that's kind of a, a major finding. Some other things can affect like peeling off individual justice votes, like the side with more former clerks, gets more individual justice votes in a case. Experienced attorneys get more votes too, right, because they're more likely to win. They do that uh, through also getting votes. And it's a way resources matter, right, because those more experienced attorneys typically can be afforded by better-resourced filers who can go out and hire those folks. So it's a story about resources, and it's a story about experience.
3: Experienced attorneys come at a price. So are you also saying... That it isn't just about experience of the attorneys preparing the briefs, but the amount of money that's invested in one side versus the other will influence this?
2: It certainly seems to be the case, and it's you know has a certain amount of logic to it. What we find has more traction is just thinking about the sheer numbers, right? That amicus brief filed by 100 different groups is different than the brief that I file because I woke up one Thursday afternoon and had nothing better to do and, you know, sent it in under my own name. You know, I don't have much experience doing that. I wouldn't know who the attorney was to hire if if I wanted to. You have to have that knowledge. So it's a complex story, but at the end of the day, resources matter and experience matters. And experience filing amicus briefs can help you understand which are the more experienced attorneys to hire. So We look at these things individual, but the story, the the broad tapestry tells is very much that it's about being part of the game on a regular basis. And you're going to need resources to do that as well. So the more you have and the more frequently you're using those resources in that environment, the better you're doing. And I think Morgan can back that up with some more stuff about the similarity to the majority opinion.
0: No, absolutely. And I was actually going to go back and say we looked at sort of both sides, like how does this influence the information that's flowing to the court? And what we saw is that these more experienced attorneys, their briefs look different. They contain more information in a way that should hearten all of our legal research and writing. Instructors write less emotionality, clearer writing, right? We see that, that you're buying things that we think should create better legal briefs. That consistency and messaging is then reflected in the articulation of facts and law that the Supreme Court ultimately announces. And that is really as much as winning matters, and in the book we make a joke about, you know, in sports, there's the idea winning isn't the most important thing, it's the only thing. Well, of course, in Supreme Court litigation, the actual precedent that will affect the future is incredibly important. <music>
3: Let's take this opportunity for another brief break, and when we return, I'm interested to learn to what extent the actual language from a lawyer's briefs get inserted into the justice's final written opinions.
4: The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. What I remember from the book is, and you've just stated it, but I want to emphasize it, is often you'll see that well-resourced, experienced, brief language pulled directly from it into the majority opinion. So the amicus brief is literally helping write the policy. We often think about resources as money, but resources can also be experience. What you've also said is information plays an enormous role in influencing good briefs that can affect Supreme Court decision making. Access to information seems like a resource as well that isn't always readily available to less moneyed brief writers. So I'm wondering if there's asymmetry in information tends to be on the moneyed side versus those who may not have the same monetary resources.
2: Great question. At the Supreme Court level, I think we're seeing, because the Supreme Court is so willing to hear these amicus briefs, what we see is both sides to an issue often have groups behind them. Now this is where like consumer protection, you know, different interest groups come in that maybe have a more grassroots approach, but it shows the importance of interest groups in lobbying, which is of course something we know applies more across the board for folks who have the resources to start, they can just kind of directly deploy those into lobbying, like whether it's the courts or legislatures, but for Little people, right, who need to come together and pool those resources. Briefs are a place where that can be done. We do have folks with resources representing the interests of people without who don't have those same resources.
0: Also from the interview, something that came up quite a bit is the extent to which these elite attorneys that are part of this ever-narrowing group of Supreme Court litigators are willing to volunteer time and their expertise to some groups. And depending on the issue that may happen, it's also a way of getting in front of the court and building those practices. So it it may not be all altruistic, but we do see some I think very important sort of pro bono work going on. I think we
4: saw that with Ted Olson and David Boyce when it came to the marriage equality work that they did. A lot of that was done because they believed in the issue. And not necessarily because they needed to be in front of the court or it was a moneymaker for them.
3: Let me branch out because both of you deal with public policy, judicial policy, government policy, things of that, in addition to this narrower area of research. But I listened to your descriptions, which seem perfectly sensible about how the system works. But I must tell you, it alarms me to some extent of the insular nature that you've just described, almost gatekeepers to the court, an increasingly shrinking group of attorneys who have an, uh, I was going to say undue influence, but extended influence when they're the ones creating the briefs, making the arguments. I don't think anybody outside of the Supreme Court insiders would understand that there is this, what appears to be gatekeeper system that influences which cases get heard and which cases might get a positive outcome is that too outrageous of a statement to make
0: i don't think it's too outrageous i would say i'm of two minds about it of course this is of you know a very sophisticated elite type of litigation and so to the extent that we see specialists arising right law practice generally has gravitated that way over time for more of a political, democratic side being concerned about access, right? If you're going to open this up to outside interest, that immediately causes issues of, you know, are we really keeping people from, from access, are we really privileging the most resourced and organized interests? and I think that there's just so much more research we need to do on that because I think it is normatively concerning right? That we think that there's influence and it may not represent a plurality.
4: Just to continue on that vein, we recently had Professor Charles J. speak with us about judicial ethics. And it, one of the concerning things is that there, there isn't a code of judicial ethics that applies specifically to the Supreme Court. And we have seen some concerning indications of influence outside of the routine court process. For example, four justices might go to a Federalist Society event, and then Federalist Society submits briefs to the court, or justices might have a a paid trip to speak at a particular event, and then those individuals end up filing or have issues before the court. Did you guys look at that at all?
2: We did not. No, but we should. Needs two pieces of data, right? The people making arguments to the court and how successful they are. And we have that side of things. But if someone has a honorariums received from, um, you could link those things up and it would be very interesting to see what you found.
4: Rachel and Morgan, let's take a break. And when we return, let's shift gears and discuss whether you think artificial intelligence, possibly based on research and data such as yours, might replace human judges.
3: Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Rachel, we, we earlier talked with Orly Lobel about the evolution of the use of artificial intelligence, AI, and the practice of law. But there's been a lot of discussion lately about to what extent will the judging of law be influenced by AI. One of the discussions is that, well, if you have this database of all the decisions and you know the judges, and you know how they've decided, and you use AI to plug all of this in, you pretty well have a predictive model of how to argue and what you would expect would come out of that that has very little to do with the facts of the case. What do you think about that?
2: Predictive modeling is a little bit tricky. It's the old garbage in, garbage out. So the higher quality and and more information you're putting into it, the, the better you could do. Even though political scientists are very good at understanding how judges and especially Supreme Court justices decide on issues, nobody's particularly good at predicting future votes or decisions. That's a little bit that's a little bit trickier task.
3: Morgan, you and I talked briefly earlier about what you think AI can and can't do in the decision making process, what humans do better, what computers do better. And you had an opinion about that.
0: I was saying this has been something that actually has been coming up for decades, and there are these more routinized tasks that computers are always going to be better at than human beings. And they're getting much more sophisticated right in the task that we can assign them. But there's a lot of use of heuristics and these higher level reasoning that I don't think that computers are on the verge of being able to replace human beings on. But I do think there are going to be tools that are going to help us. And to some extent, what it does is let us be more efficient with things that have been involved in lawyering for a long time.
3: If I were a senior partner at a major law firm, and I deal with appellate law, and I'm looking to do better service for my clients, what have you learned that you can teach me as a managing partner to redirect the efforts or improve the efforts of my firm?
0: I think one thing that I would bring up immediately, which I think is already happening, but you could redouble, is those efforts towards coordination, right? Making sure that you have every party that should be filing a brief filing and that everyone's rowing in the same direction. People are, of course, covering a wide array, but that there's this commonality of theme. And I believe that's already going on, but I think even more of that is helpful to its side. I'll let Rachel speak to also on the winning side that really having everyone coordinated and giving more
2: information, we see that matters. Thing that popped in my head was trod the beaten path. This this is the way to success. Go as a group. This is not the time to take the path less traveled. There is a time for that. This is not it. Related to that, quality matters more than quantity. Trod the beaten path. It doesn't, and we hadn't talked about this, but number of filers, number of briefs, number of attorneys matter less than the experience of those folks. If you don't know what's happened before, get in touch with some people who are familiar with this process.
0: I would also say the importance of reputation, because we think the power of attorneys, it is in large part about what they know, how they know to do things, that they are producing briefs that look different. But also we have results that indicate that reputation matters a lot. You can bring all the information and arguments in the world, but if the judges don't believe that they can trust that, that will harm you. Mm -hmm.
3: We're going to take one final brief break from our conversation with Morgan Hazelton and Rachel Hingle, authors of the book Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significance of Briefs in Judicial Decision-Making. When we return, we're going to ask Morgan and Rachel what role non-lawyers possibly play in influencing the policies that are decided in the actual Supreme Court opinions.
4: Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities.
3: For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.
4: Just to finish where I started, which is the Supreme Court is a policy-making body. Normally what we're talking about when we've talked about state legislatures or some of the other bodies that affect everyday lives is we do a call to action for anyone who's listening regardless of whether or not they're in the legal profession. It seems as if we don't have that same call to action for non-lawyers To engage in this effort before the Supreme Court, even though it has an enormous impact on their day-to-day lives? I would say
0: that a lot of interest groups that brief before the Supreme Court are membership organizations. Their briefs tend to look a little different, and in some ways, They do things that are maybe not as helpful, but not all of them by any means. And I would say if you are interested in an area that investing in groups that are doing this type of briefing at a high level would be my call
2: to action, I think it does matter. I would say the same thing. And and for some people, it might be content. If you have organizations you support financially and with your time, um, ask them, are we also filing with... The Supreme Court, do we have a partner who's fine with the Supreme Court on behalf of these issues? It's an important area where policy is made, even though individuals can't effectively necessarily get involved in that. I mean, we can be effective the way we can be effective in anything, right? With our time, with our dollars, with our voice.
3: Rachel and Morgan, thank you very much. This has been very informative. And I must say I'm a little less alarmed than I might have been when I started. I had this dark vision of money and an elite group that were whispering in the ears of the Supreme Court. And and you've let us left us with a much better hopeful environment where we do have access.
4: And just so you know, that's really Mitch's view of the world generally, not just about this particular topic. So
3: thank you very much. Thank you for being on Sidebar.
0: It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
3: Jackie, I thought today's conversation was very helpful for a couple of reasons. One was informative about how important briefing before the Supreme Court is as part of the decision-making process. And I know that sounds like it's a bit down in the weeds of the process of practicing law. But when all the public gets are the brief sound bites from news when the Supreme Court issues a decision, or even a brief soundbite from the arguments that are made, I think it does a disservice to our communities to not understand how complicated and detailed the process of arguing these complex issues before the court can be. These professors helped us understand that it's the background, the writing and preparation that are presented to the court, in addition to those relatively brief oral arguments that actually do have an effect
4: for those of you interested i I think it's just an excellent book to read for background on what influences supreme court decision making i think i came into the conversation as you did troubled by what appears to be power asymmetry in the ability to influence the Supreme Court. And I really want people to understand, and I kept coming back to, what about the non-lawyer out there? Because unlike legislative statement that can then be changed in the next legislative Congress or state legislature, Supreme Court decisions are often about the Constitution. And it is much more challenging to change quickly Supreme Court decisions that are an interpretation of the Constitution. So in many ways, the power to influence Supreme Court decision-making has lasting impacts that we don't necessarily recognize or don't necessarily see in the same way at the state or federal level when it comes to uh, legislative policymaking.
3: I like the part at the end where Professors Hazelton and Hinkle reinforced that it's still engagement at the local personal level. Join the groups, support the groups, fund the groups, participate in the groups that protect the interests that are important to you. And then those groups provide a collective effort that could be a voice even to the U.S. Supreme Court to get those policies and protections in front of the court that are important to you.
4: So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind. And you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org.
3: Thank you to our producer and musical muse who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial go go zoger